Ladies and gentlemen, delighted to be here and deeply honored to be invited to talk to this distinguished group of aviators and friends of aviation at the premises of the museum that was built on the runways that I used to fly from <laughs> 72 years ago. Oh, excuse me, 62 years ago. Yes, I spent time here at Brightfield at the test division. But the interesting part that I'd like to really tell you is how I got involved in the flying game where I ended up flying as a fighter pilot of two great air forces, the British Royal Air Force and Uncle Sam's Army Air Force in England during World War II. I started to fly and I began to dream about flying when I was born in Athens, Greece. I was 12 years old, as it was said, when a biplane of the Greek Air Force flew over my neighborhood while I was walking. I was late that day, and I was walking to go to school. And the aircraft just did maneuvers that I had never seen before. He dove into this area where I was passing by, and and. Believe me, it made me so captivated that I didn't know what to do. I was just frozen right there. And as the aircraft flew away, I said to myself, that's it. When I grow up, I'll become an aviator. From that day on, books and school meant nothing to me. <laughs> I used to skip away from school and walk 25 kilometers to watch the Greek Air Force aircraft fly at this aerodrome outside of Athens. I would come home late, and my mother says, where you been? Oh, I said, we were playing soccer and uh, lice. On Sundays, when we had dinner with my father, he would ask after, by the way, we were six siblings, five boys and a girl. On Sunday, my father would say, what did you learn in school last week? Oh, I said, we had uh, geography and uh, arithmetic and these big lies. I was lying through my teeth. <laughs> I discovered the book of Baron von Richthofen in one of the bookstores in Athens. And I took, I bought that book for pennies and I took it to school. And while the teacher was teaching us something and we had to have the school books, I had the Baron's book in front of me. I'll never forget, he came by and he spotted me and all of a sudden he came by. What book is that? There was an aeroplane in one of the pages. Oh, you know, I didn't know what to say. Oh, he got mad and he told my father. He was a friend of my father. That's how crazy I was about flying. As I was approaching the last year in high school, I was dreaming to go to the Greek Air Force Academy that produces the aviators. But then I found out the entrance examinations were absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't do it. I was a third class student. So when I 
discover that I will not be able to finish my dream in the place of my birth, I said, I'm going to go to America. How? I didn't have anybody here to help me. I didn't have any money. I couldn't speak English. But I was determined to go to America any way possible. I read an article in a magazine one time how a Greek boy stole away on a Greek vessel and went to Egypt to be with his uncle when his father had died. He went to Egypt and he did well. Egypt had and has quite a few Greeks there now. That gave me an idea. Stowaway on the ship. How? Where? My father was a motorman in the subway of Athens that drove down all the way down to the port. And I had free passage. I would go down to the port to see, you know, what ships, you know, go to America. And I learned one day that the Italian liner Rex was coming to Greece to pick up a bunch of Greek passengers for New York. I skipped school. I went down to the harbor. And I watched the liner being docked. And people began to come down to visit Athens because the next day it was departing for New York. I came home. I didn't say anything. I wrote a little note to my family. I'm sorry I'm doing this to you, but I have to. I invaded my mother's cookie jar, filled up my pockets, and the next day I was down at the harbor. People began to arrive. They had spent the night in Athens, perhaps, all the Greek passengers. But I had no idea how to really get on board the ship. All of a sudden, a truck loaded with suitcases, trunks, like the passengers, the way they traveled. The truck unloaded everything by the gangway. And about four or five people, including a big husky foreman, evidently, began to carry those suitcases and trunks on board. And that gave me the idea. As they had really, all five of them had already gone up the, the, the stop ladder to, to get up to the ship. I picked up two suitcases and slowly, I, lower, I had taken my father's uh, fisherman's uh, hat, by the way. I lowered my hat and I picked up the two suitcases and slowly I went up. I went through the security guard they had up there. He didn't say anything. So as I came around, what I had in mind to just get away from the area, from the traffic area, drop the suitcases and try to find a place to hide. As I made a right turn into a hallway, a door opened and almost slapped me in the face. The foreman of that group, who the hell are you, he said. What are you doing here? Oh, I said, of course, I, I, I couldn't really, I was out of breath. I said, I saw you down below there. You had so many suitcases, you know, and I want to help you. Maybe I can make some tips. No, he says, we don't need you. He grabbed my hand. We went by the security officer there, the harbor policeman, and he said, this guy doesn't belong to us. Get him off the ship. That's how I lost the opportunity to stow away on the wrecks. But I didn't give up. About a month later, we were playing soccer one day. And a fellow was just sitting up there, and he wanted to join us and play. 
we allow him to play. And I discovered that he was a Greek-American boy from Buffalo, New York, about my age. Well, I got excited. We became friends. He, he was visiting Athens to be with his uncle, his father's brother. I told Harry what I had attempted to do. And he told me that you, you would have never made it. You would have died in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean from claustrophobia, even if you had found a good place. They, they would have found you, the, the, the crew, the, the, the captain or somebody. But he said, there is another way to go to America, like my father used. I said, what, what's the other way? Get a job on a merchant ship. The Greek merchant marine was the biggest merchant marine in the world. Get a job. So that really gave me ideas. I didn't say anything to my father, or even to my friends, that I was thinking about that. Then I learned how to do it, how to apply for an up. After I had passed my 18th birthday, which I didn't have to ask my parents to do what I wanted to do, I got my nautical papers, joined the union. A month later, I got a job on a freighter, 10,000 tons, as an assistant fireman. When I asked, when I Board, you know, got on the ship, and I asked the two firemen that I was going to be their assistant. I said, what, what do you do? Oh, he said, down below, there are mountains of coal. He said, you shovel the coal, put it in a barrel, and then you push the barrel and dump it into a pit for the firemen below. That was my job. Thank God, when we left the port of Piraeus to go to Oran, in Algeria to get a load of iron ore. And we were going to Cardiff, England, or Baltimore. Truthfully, truthfully, the city in America that I was in love with was New York. I didn't know where Baltimore was. And when he said Cardiff, England, or Baltimore, I thought it was another city in England. It was one while we were in the Atlantic Ocean when I learned where Baltimore was. And I was asking the fireman, I said, uh, who, who is this uh, Baltimore? Oh, he said, uh, not too far away from New York, well, a couple hours by train. And what I was thinking about, you know, maybe I can walk up there from Baltimore to New York, <laughs> you know. And then he began to tell me, oh, by the way, when I left uh, home, you know, my father was all excited because my father was born in Sparta and he was really in a family of fishermen and he loved the sea and he thought that by going, me going to sea, I would really become a man. So anyway, he, gave me five, he had given me $8 to take with me on the trip. Anyway, I asked this uh, the elder uh, uh, firemen, who, by the way, they were brothers. And for the first time, they, were, they had uh, gotten a job on a ship, you know, together. I said, uh, but, uh, I said what, what, what do you do in Baltimore? Oh, he says, you know, I was in Baltimore about 10 years ago with another ship. And what did you do? Oh, he says, one of the crew members wanted to go to New York to meet his uncle. And I went with him. How did you go that? I said, you don't speak English. 
We don't need to speak English. He said, the only thing you need to know is go to the window where the train, at the station, put the money on the counter there and say, ticket for New York. Ticket for New York? When I was down below shoveling coal into the wheelbarrow, ticket for New York, ticket for New York, to memorize it. Anyway, we arrived in Baltimore, good old Baltimore, on a Friday evening. We docked outside the harbor. The berth that the ship was supposed to use was occupied by another ship. Saturday, the immigration came on board, examined the cargo and the crew. They left. Saturday night, evidently, the crew, the officers went out, and some of the crew members. I stayed on board. Sunday morning, I got up, I dressed well, my $8 in my pocket, and I said, I've got to find a way to just get off the ship and go into the city, catch the train, and go to New York. I didn't know how to do it. I, I was thinking if I could really get a big plastic bag and put my clothes in it and then hold that and try to swim, but I wasn't a good swimmer. And besides, you know, if somebody had seen me in, in the harbor, you know, they would have really probably become a little bit uh, upset, maybe a lost uh, man or somebody. So I abandoned the idea. Then all of a sudden, a small motorboat was approaching the ship, and I could figure out what this guy was trying to do. He came close to the accommodation ladder, tied up his little boat, and he walked upstairs with a bunch of newspapers. Evidently, he was a newspaper guy delivering Sunday paper to the ships outside the harbor. I looked at the guy, and then when he began to go down to his little boat, it dawned on me. That's it. That's the guy who will take me out there. So I went over the rail and I said, Shh. I didn't want to make any noise because everybody was asleep. I was the only one, and the cook was the, only, the other guy up. I looked down there, and I took a dollar out of my pocket, and I said, and pointed out, come down, he said. I came down. In 10 minutes, I was on American soil. I really, I really, really, I wanted to kneel down there and kiss that land. It took me all day to find the railway station. I wanted to intercept the tracks, because I knew from Athens, if you follow the tracks, you're liable to go to the station. That's what I did. I located the station, a lot of people inside the terminal, and I don't know which window or where to go. And I saw a man in uniform, which I realized that he was a railway man. I said, New York, New York, he pointed at the window. I went to the window. I put my $7, I had $7 now, the dollar I gave to the little boatman. I put my $7 up there, and like I knew exactly what I was saying, I said, ticket for New York. The man gave me the ticket. He took about $3 and gave me some change. I got on the train, trembling, always fearing that maybe the captain, you know, would walk up there and say, hey, this guy left my ship. That's the guy right there. But nothing happened, of course. Very soon the train began to move. And when, if 
you know, if you know geography, you know after, after Baltimore, it's uh, Philadelphia. Thank God there was a gentleman in front, you know, and I said, uh, New York, New York? No, she was reading the paper. Then from Philadelphia, we stopped at Trenton. Afterwards, I realized what had happened. And again, I said, New York? No. So when we arrived past Newark, we didn't stop at Newark. We got into the tunnel, and I got a little scared. And finally, we arrived at Pennsylvania Station. And this is where God sent a miracle for me. I saw that movie, you know, Miracle on 34th Street. Uh-uh, the miracle was on 8th Avenue. <laughs> I got off the station. I didn't know which way to go. And I just began to follow people. And I got down these, these stops on 8th Avenue and 34th Street. I didn't know where to go. I began to cry, honestly. And I started to walk northward. At about 36th Street, I noticed across the avenue, there was the Greek flag and the American flag in a lighted area. I, I couldn't figure out what on earth that place was. I crossed, I almost got hit by a car. I didn't know anything about traffic and things like that. I crossed the avenue. I ran into a movie house that was playing the first movie that was made in Greece. I looked at it, and I had seen the movie, by the way, The Shepherd's Daughter. While I was standing there watching the pictures, two gentlemen from behind, about two feet behind me, started to talk in Greek. One was saying, what do the Greeks know about movies now? Let's be honest. The other says, well, let's go inside, have a look at it, and if you don't like it, you know, Get out. Well, immediately when I heard them talking Greek, I turned back and I said, you, you, want, you want to know something about this movie? And the elder fellow, you know, he looked up, who turned out to be brothers from the island of Cyprus, who had, Greeks from the island of Cyprus, who had immigrated to the U.S. some time ago. Well, he said, uh, well, what do you know about this movie? Well, I said, I saw it in Athens. In Athens? And what are you doing here? We, uh, I told him what I had done. And I didn't want to go back to the ship. I wanted to stay here. And where are you going? Oh, I said, uh, I was told, you know, that uh, maybe I run into a Greek church or some Greeks, you know, that uh, now he said the church won't be able to help me. You come with us. She said, we live in Brooklyn. That was the miracle that really helped me. So I went to Brooklyn with them. Three days later, the elder fellow who was a chef at a restaurant in Brooklyn got me a job at the bakery, 149th Street and Broadway. He told me how to use the subway. He gave me a bunch of nickels. At that time, you pay five cents, no more. My first objective was to learn English because I knew that if I want to fulfill my dream becoming an aviator, I would never be able to do it unless I learned English. But I couldn't go to a night school because of the hours that I was working. So I got hold of a Greek-English dictionary, and I began to teach myself English. Later on, I found out that there was an English school nearby, which I joined up, and I went at night 
on my day off. Six months later, I was taking flying lessons at Floyd Bennett Field at a small school, flying J3 cars, about 60 miles an hour traveling. And it was a school that you didn't have to be there every day the way we know the flying schools today, the academies. You do that uh, anytime you want to. I was paying $12 an hour for dual and $8 for solo. I continue. I met, I met a friend later on, and he said, I know a place in New Jersey, Westville Airport. They have a club there where you can pay $8 for instructions and $6 for solo. Without hesitation, I moved to New Jersey, and I got a job at the Park Hotel in Plainfield, New Jersey. And I started to fly from Westville Airport. I took the written examination from the CAA. I had, oh, close to about 60, 70 hours. Then it happened. A gentleman walked into the kitchen of this big hotel. He was talking to the chef, and I noticed the chef pointed at me. He came over to the pantry where I was working, and he said, is your name Pisanos? I said, yes, sir. He said, I am from the immigration, <laughs> and you must come with me. I, th I said, come with you where? To Ellis Island? Well, I said, do you mind if I go over to change my clothes? Yes, he said, but I must come with you, and I want to warn you, don't do anything, because I am armed. So we took the train from Plainfield, Jersey City, took the ferry. He didn't say anything until we were on the ferry to Ellis Island. He says, I don't know what they're going to do with you. The Germans have already invaded your country, but we'll see what the director will say. I was interrogated. I was asked, you know, whether I am a communist or belong to a fascist organization. But I must really add something here. They found me because I had registered for the draft and also the alien registration that President Roosevelt came up with since the war in Europe was going full speed. And of course, as you remember, we had German spies here all over the place. And I think this is how the boys you know, discover me. The next day, it was a big auditorium with many people. And an officer in uniform was walking by. Pisanos, Pisanos, I said, that's me. Follow me, he said. I walked into the director's office. And who was there? The owner of the Park Hotel, a German fellow who... He had arrived in America the same way I did. He was a waiter on the SS Bremen. But look what America can do to people you know with determination. He owned three hotels, one in Plainfield, one in Trenton, and one in Newark. He came here as a waiter from the boat, from the ship, but he was discovered evidently. And he told the authorities, hold it, I'm going to leave the country because I can get a job on another German ship. But he came back with a visa. I didn't have a dream of doing that. I wanted to do my dream here. 
So anyway, the director said, uh, young man, he said, uh, we can't send you back to the place of your birth. The Germans are there. Uh, he said, we have classified you as a refugee, and you're going to be given a paper, and you can go out, back to your hotel, do whatever you want to. Was I happy? I thought this fellow, Uncle Sam, was really a wonderful guy. <laughs> <clears throat> I continue my flying. I took my flight check, which I passed with <laughs> I, wonderful. Even the, even the written examination, the way I was really uh, teaching myself English and going to a night school, you know, it helped tremendously. And by the way, while I was studying, working at, that, at the Park Hotel, I took some garbage one day over to the big garbage can, and I noticed inside there were what about a bunch of menus that they had used, all menus from the day before and the week before. And I picked up pages. I noticed the menu here on the back was empty. Hey, that's what I'm going to do, all my navigational problems for my license and this and that and my English. And those were the papers that I used to learn English and learn about flying. I would copy paragraphs from the flying books I had obtained from the CAA, the predecessor of the FAA today. Anyway, I got my license. I was very happy. In fact, I took the, the owner of the Park Hotel son up on a flight and I flew over the hotel. He was so excited and he told his mother and then this, the owner of the hotel, a fellow by the name Stender, he said, uh, someday I'll go up with you. I like to be up in the air. Anyway, the Germans continue with their machinery, destroying everything in Europe, as you know. They had occupied Greece. They were stealing fruit and olive oil and everything they could. They would kill people, and the people would be lying on the gutters in Athens, you know, and nobody had money or the way to remove those dead bodies from the streets. And I was excited. I was so mad. I was so mad. This was about the beginning, about the middle of 1941. So I went to Westfield Airport one day, and my instructor, Johnny Hilton, we went out to lunch, and I was so upset. And he saw me. He said, what? I said, did you see the papers? The yesterday papers. I said, what is happening in, my, in the place of my birth? And I must admit, old Johnny kept it quiet, but he was one of the persons the British or the Royal Air Force was using to recruit Americans to join the Royal Air Force without publicity because Mr. J. Edgar Hoover didn't like the idea of an Americans going over to fight a war that America was supposed to be neutral. So Johnny said, uh, you really want to fight the Germans? Well, Johnny, I said, if I can only get there, I'll fight the SOBs. How would you like to join the Royal Air Force, he said. Why? When? Where? I can't go to England. No, here, he said, here in America. He said, at the hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York on the 13th floor. There is an office. Outside the door, there's a sign. Clayton Knight Committee. Clayton and Knight were aviators in World War I. 
And guess well, who else was behind this exhibition? Fiorillo LaGuardia. <clears throat> so he says, you go there and they'll take you. But Johnny, I, I only had, a, had 170 hours and the minimum was 200 hours. So one day on my day off, I jumped on the train with my logbook and my license. I went to the Waldorf Astoria. I located that office and a lady opened the door for me and she said, can I help you? I said, I was told to come here, you know, to inquire about joining the Royal Air Force. She took me to another office and I made the squadron leader, George Graves. The guy was in charge of the entire program. They had schools in, Spart in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, with the Spartan School of Aeronautics, a school in, the, on, in the Bakersfield, California, uh, another one in Dallas, and one in uh, Glendale, California. So I met the squadron leader, and she looked at my logbook, but she said, you only had 170 hours. She said, why did you want to fly with the, for, join the RAF? Sir, I said, I want to fight the Germans. I think this is what really did it. Because, you know, we had, to, we had some, uh, some of the Americans who joined the RAF, and I learned later on, you know, he said, why do you want to fly for the RAF? Oh, I want to fly the Spitfire. Fly the Spitfire? Don't you want to fight the Germans? But evidently, I must have really impressed the man when I said I want to fight the Germans. And uh, about two, three months later, I was, accept I was notified that I had been accepted. I was given a physical examination and a flight check. And then I was sent to Polaris Flight Academy in California at Grand Central Air Terminal. The airplanes that we were flying there, the school was using, had U.S. Army Air Force markings. Some of the instructors were Army Air Corps pilots who had left the service to do that job. Anyway, I got about 100 hours military training. And when I was given it, the final check ride, who was the pilot? The squadron leader from New York. She was evidently satisfied the way I was flying, and I passed with colors. Fifteen of us were on this class. Seven of them went out as sergeant pilots. The other eight pilot officers, second lieutenants. I was one of the pilot officers. After the training, I went to England. I went to an officer's training school. I learned about how to salute, how to wear the uniform, and all that. Then after that, I went to an operational training unit. I was taught by British pilots who had fought in the Battle of Britain how to fight, how to fly, how to chase the Luftwaffe, and all that. Then I was assigned to a squadron flying P-51s, the P-51s with the Allison engine because we had two kinds, with the Merlin and the Allison. And our mission was to strafe trains and anything German in Holland. So we had to fly over the North Sea. Was that a little scare? You bet. Me, or flying over the sea on a single engine aircraft, going to the enemy territory, but I managed to do all right. Then, a problem. The Greek Air Force in exile that had escaped from Greece had an office in London with the king staying at the Clarence Hotel. And one day, 
my flight leader said, Pisanos, he said, somebody wants you on the phone. A Greek Air Force wing commander, equivalent to lieutenant colonel, got on the phone, spoke half Greek, half English. Mr. Pisanos, he says, uh, I'd like for you to come down to London. I need to talk to you. He said, we tried to organize a Spitfire squadron in Egypt, and we need pilots. Evidently, many of the Greek pilots who had escaped from Greece had gone to Malta, to Egypt. Some had uh, arrived in, uh, in England. And what the Greek Air Force did, you know, they went through to the Air Ministry and asked the Air Ministry, let us look some a list of pilots, and if they could find some Greek names, by That's how they found me. I wasn't in the Greek Air Force. Anyway, I faced this wing commander in London, and he says, I'm going to take you away from the RAF and send you to Egypt to join the Greek. I said, sir, I said, I don't want to go to Egypt. I want to stay here because my dream is to go back to America and become an American citizen. Well, he said, you're a Greek soldier? And he said, you belong to the Greek government? He was really angry because I expressed myself that way. I told him again, sir, I don't want to go to Egypt. I want to stay with the RAF. Well, we'll see what the king will say about that. That was really remarkable, and I walked out. But as I came out from the Clarence Hotel, I said, my God, I said, well, how can I? And then I thought about my friend I had met, squadron leader, Chesley Peterson, who was the commander of the 70, 71 Eagle Squadron. I located Pete, who happened to be in London that day, and we met at the, at the, the Regent Palace Hotel. We had lunch, and I told him what happened. Well, he said, do you want to go to uh, Egypt? No, I said, I want to stay with the RAF. Okay, he said, I'm going to fighter command. Now, fighter command was kind of hesitant to, to, to deal with the Greeks. And old Chesley Peterson was telling me later on, I told him, you guys spend thousands of dollars to train this pilot, and now you're going to let him go to go to an outfit that they don't even have the aircraft yet? That's how I saved my neck. So the decision was made by fighter command, Chesley Peterson, and the squadron commander with the squad, 268 squadron that I belong to. Immediately take Pisanos out of 268 squadron, send him to Depton to the 71 Eagle squadron, and if the Greeks want him, they're going to deal with Peterson. That's how I was really joined, I joined the 71 Eagle squadron. Now, this was the beginning of September 1942. The Americans had begun to arrive in England with the 8th Air Force. No aircraft yet. The B-17s began to arrive later. But General Spatch was there. Doolittle came in later. All preparing everything. And one of the things they did, they looked with binoculars to the three Eagle Squadrons. 245 Americans or so with, with a college degree. I mean, a diploma, you know, in aerial combat. So the decision was made that they're going to have everybody from the RAF taken into the Army Air Corps. The Army Air Corps, at the time, later on, they changed themselves to Army Air Force. So then, hmm, Peterson intercepted me one day, and he said, uh, have you gone to London to go through the interview for the transfer? But I said, sir, I said, I'm not an American. This is for the American. They need everybody. They're going to take you. He says, go down to London. He insisted that I go to London to go through the interview, which they had coordinated. 
So I went to London. I faced three Army Air Corps colonels sitting on a, behind a desk. They asked me questions, and of course, they spotted my accent. And the middle colonel, Henry Stovall, I remember that name very well, he said, do you intend to go back to America after the war is over? Yes, sir. I said, I want to become an American, and I want to stay in America. So they had a little chit-chat among themselves, and he came back and said, would you accept a, a commission as a second lieutenant in the Army Air Force? I said, oh, yes, sir. That's how I was transferred to the Army Air Force without being an American. We continued to fly with the Spitfires. We kept the equipment, the Spitfires. We were doing strafing, chasing trains. We really didn't dare to challenge the Luftwaffe at the time because the Luftwaffe was far superior. Then the decision was made that we go to take to get an American aircraft, the old P-47. We began to train with the P-47. And while training one day, and the day was the 3rd of May, 1943, I was flying with my good friend Don Gentelli from nearby Pickway, Ohio. And I got a call on the radio. Pecton 39, that was my call sign. You are to immediately pancake in the RAF language, you know, pancake in the flying business means pancake, I mean land. I said, uh, repeat again, please. He said, you are to return to base, the tower said. So I hurry. I told Don, I said, Don, I said, I got to go. I left Dantelli and I dove down and I landed as I taxied the aircraft by the dispersal. Chesley Peterson, a lieutenant colonel now, he was sitting at the staff car with my squadron commander. And as I got off the aircraft, I went over, I saluted. I said, sir, why did they call me for my training flight? He said, get in the car. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, then, then it dawned on me. Oh, oh uh, Tommy Andrews, uh, who was my uh, uh, squadron commander, 34 squadron commander, he said, as he got off the car for me to get in, in the front there, he said, uh, good luck, uh, Spiro. So we, he began to drive towards his office. We got to his office. He sat down on the other side. He asked me to sit down. This Colonel Peterson, he said, connect me with the embassy in, Washington, in uh, London, please. Oh, my God. That's it. The Greeks have gone to the American embassy and told the embassy, this guy is not an American. He's a Greek subject. This is what really went through my head. And God darn it. I said, Jesus. I said, why didn't he tell me that that's... So then the embassy evidently answered, and they said, this is Colonel Peterson. He said, will you connect me with the ambassador, please? Now, Colonel Pete was a very good friend with Ambassador John Wynant, the fighter boy from World War I. He said, John, I got the young lieutenant right here, and I think you better tell him. I knew it. I said, Jesus, I said, I'm going to Egypt. <laughs> I knew it right there. <laughs> the ambassador answered the phone and said, Lieutenant, how would you like to become an American citizen here in London today? Those were the words that came through that telephone. 
You think that my heart did not come out and say goodbye? <laughs> so, but uh, I said, sir, but, but sir, I, I, I'm waiting until I get back to America and become an American. No, no, no. He said, we're going to naturalize you here in London. You better hurry down. So then he said, let me talk to Colonel Peterson. They conversed up there and they decided. So I went to my room, put my uniform on, took the train to London. At the, gate, at the embassy, of course, they told me, I said, I need to see the ambassador. They're waiting for me. In the office of the ambassador was a Dr. Henry Hazard, special envoy from the Department of Justice in Washington to quickly naturalize a bunch of us who were serving in the Air Force at the time without, we were aliens, not Americans. In Peterson, the ambassador, when he got the signal from the State Department that the man was coming in, he thought of Peterson because Peterson had asked him, what do we do with this big guy? I want to make him an American. And there was no way until this situation. Anyway, here I am in London at the embassy. The ambassador introduced me to Dr. Hazard. And he said, now, this being a military event, he said, I think it should take place at the military headquarters, another building around the corner from Grosvenor Square. So we went to the other building, and I walked into an auditorium just, just as big as this here. Newspaper men, stars and stripes, uh, English papers. Uh, Ed Morrow was there, and uh, what have you. Anyway, I took the ceremony. I mean, I took the oath, and the ceremony was beautiful. And then Dr. Hazard said that, uh, gentlemen, ladies, I'd like to introduce to you the new American. And he said to me, you're going to be proud for the rest of your life because you happen to be the first individual ever to become an American citizen outside the U.S. continental limits. Was I proud? Am I proud? You bet your bottom life. This is what I tell the youngsters, you know, in high school. Be proud. When you look at the American flag, I said, look at it and think. Anyway, I came back to the station the following day. I stay in London because Ed Morrow was a friend of Ben Lyon. Ben Lyon was one of the old actors, you know, who played on the movie that I had seen from 20 times, Hell's Angels, the movie that Harry Hughes made. So anyway, Ben Lyon invited me to go to his house that night, and Ed Morrow came up there, and it was wonderful. The next day, I went to the station, and everybody, honest to God, my friends, you know, oh, Don Gentelli, he hugged me and kissed me. He said, buddy, you're an American. Well, you belong to me. And by the way, the friendship that I had created, we had created between Gentelli, the Italian, and Steve Pisano, the Greek, Every time they would introduce us, you know, he said, have you met the Greek and the Italian brothers? They really consider us brothers, yeah. We continued to fight the Luftwaffe with the P-47. I had my first victory on the 21st of May, my first mission with the P-47. I tangled up with an FW-190, and the guy was a little smart, and he made the mistake, and I nailed him. Walter Cronkite visited our base, and he interviewed me and another friend, and that's how I know Walter Cronkite, 
who was who was grac gracious, you know, to make the best introduction to the memoirs that is coming out very soon that I have completed. Anyway, we continued to escort the B-17s all over Germany. I took part on that Swanford mission where we lost 60 B-17s, 600 crew members. We hated, we the fighter people hated to take the bombers up to this point, then say, good luck boys, and go home. Then the rest of it was up to them. What was the Luftwaffe doing? Waiting until the fighters go back home. That's how they used to attack the B-17s. I flew missions. I did strafing, locomotives, trains, military trains, barges on the Rhine River, especially when the Germans began to fire at our boys, the B-17 boys coming down in a parachute. That was, I mean, awful, awful. So I think General Spatz passed the word. When you get through from the escort, get on the deck and hit anything military. I remember one time we were coming, we passed Frankfurt, and I, I saw that river up there, and I saw a big barge, a few people up there, and the thing was loaded. I don't care what it had, food or what have you. I strafed the heck out of it. And I, I, <laughs> I remember some of the crew guys were jumping over the river. I said, good luck. We continue to escort the... This is really interesting here. How do you shoot a military train to kill everybody at the same time? Now, the locomotive is a different thing. You aim the locomotive, you fire, and if you hit the boiler, goodbye locomotive. But 10 cars loaded with German soldiers? How would you do that? The RAF had taught us how to do it, particularly me, because I went to an OTU specializing low-level operations. And when the RAF flew low-level, they meant below the three top levels. That's the only way to survive on a strafing mission, which it was the most dangerous from combat. This is the way how I was taught how to get a train, and I'll, I'll tell you what happened one time. We had the debriefing at the intelligence officers. They said, now, there is a straight, you prefer to have a straight track from this point to this point. Now, from the timetables that they used to get from the underground people, they would really determine that the train leaves this city and will arrive at this city such and so time. It should be at this time, such and so time. So we'll take off and fly over the area. If we were early, we'll stay below the treetop levels up and down. But then when the train, and you, you were able to see the train, by the way, from the smoke, from the smokestack. They didn't use electric trains. They were uh, steam trains. So... You wait until the train comes on the straight track there. Then you roll up here like that, and as you just turn and aim at the train, the only thing that you do is play with your rotor to establish an even platform where the nose of the aircraft will go like this. But this has to be quick, eh? Exactly like this here. So while you're doing that, you open up the machine guns. This way, you see, you hit anybody. I, I hit a train one time, and I think I must have seen 50 soldiers, you know, jumping out. How many I got, I, I killed, I don't know. But then after the firing, you see, 
You see, also the RAF believe that when you make a pass at an aerodrome or at a locomotive, you keep on going. My friend Grabreski, we were stationed here at Wright Field together, the way they got him, he went to make a second pass at an aerodrome, and then he went up like that. What do you think the gunner at the, at the end of the uh, train did? He followed the guy, and that's how Gabby had to jump. But anyway, this was one of the things that I always enjoyed, you know, strafing. It was a great adventure. Anyway, the P-47s were not really enough for us. We wanted to have an aircraft that we can escort the bombers to the target and then bring them home. And thank God this fellow, Uncle Sam, brought us the P-51B with the British engine that was built in this country, the Parker Rolls-Royce engine. But the mistake they made was to send the aircraft to England without spark plugs. So the generals, General Kepner and Doolittle and uh, Spots probably, uh, they wanted to get the fighters up in the air as soon as possible. So they decided to use Spitfire plugs. That wasn't too good. Uh, after five, six, seven hours. Anyway, we'll come to, what, to see what happened to me later on. We got the P-51s, and to get the P-51s, our group commander, a fellow by the name Don Blexley, told General Kepner, oh, General Kepner says, I can't convert you to 51s. We have the big week coming in where we want to punch the Luftwaffe. So our group commander told General, he said, General, you give me the Mustangs, and I'll be up there in 24 hours. We did it. We did it. On the, on the 3rd of March, 1944, we escorted the B-17s to Berlin, the first mission ever in the capital of Germany. After the war, just for your information, I met Adolf Galan at La Bourget Airport. We talked about that. Ah, he says, I was in Berlin meeting with the marshal, and when we were told that the Americans came here with the bombers and fighters, we were kaput. This is what Adolf Galan told me at La Bourget. Unbelievable. Well, on the 4th of March, we decided to go back to Berlin. I was our flag. I took off, and after I just put my gear up, the right tank, fuel tank, just fell off the wing. Now, aircraft were taking off, so I, immediately I declared an emergency or something. I pulled away and I let the other aircraft take off, and so I, I didn't go on that mission. On the 5th of March, the mission was down to Bordeaux, lower southern part of France, escorting B-24s. They were bombing two aerodromes, Limoges and one at Bordeaux, that the Germans were using with JU-88s to bomb the convoys in the Atlantic. So the British and us, you know, were determined. Get them off the, the earth there. Well, we took rendezvous with the bombers, took them over to the targets. Then they got separated. A bunch went for Limoges and a bunch for, for uh, Bordeaux. I, took, I went along with the Bordeaux people. Over Bordeaux, we got into a fight. I got a couple of those, and I damaged two more. And then we got separated and I began to come home alone. Over Le Mans, a city of France, 
My engine acted funny. I knew the spark plugs would let me down. By the time I had reached the southern part of uh, Lihav, it was, that engine was, and I knew that I would not be able to make the channel. And then at the same time, as I was coming over the city of Lihav, I didn't want to turn with a dead engine after my engine quit, you know, try to bypass the city. The Germans up, opened up with their ACAC, and they just scared the heck out of me. So I said, to heck with that. So all of a sudden, when my engine quit, I gave May Day on the radio, and after my third May Day, I lost my radio. I said, to heck with that. I'm turning right back, and I'm going to bail out south. So I glided the aircraft south. This is, this is a long one here. I don't want to really keep you people. But it was really difficult. We had kept the RAF parachutes in May West. We loved them because the RAF parachute, you, you had a little big buckle here or something. You connected the four pieces here. The American parachute, you had to really plug each one here, each one here, each one here, each one here. The RAF, if you had to really take the parachute off, you just turn that buckle up here, pop it, and the thing will, parachute will disappear. When we left that morning for that mission, I had forgotten to connect the cord from the dinky to the May West. Now, if you use the parachute over the channel, the moment your feet hit the water, you don't need the parachute anymore, okay? You turn this up here, buckle, the parachute goes, and the cord will pull the dinky which you want. I had forgotten to connect that plug to the May West, male to female. Over Bordeaux, evidently, when I went like that, you know, something went wrong and the thing just got stuck somewhere below my feet. At 2,000 feet after I had released the canopy, I had in mind, you know, to stand up, and of course the wind would push me back, stand up, stop on the left wing, and slide down. So here I am, standing up, trying to fight my way with my parachute on now, eh? and I looked at the cord down there, and I said, my God, the cord. I, I began to really, really scare, scare. I pulled the thing up, I tried to pull it, nothing doing. In the meantime, the engine was dead. The aircraft was just coming down beautifully. I had trimmed the aircraft, by the way, to leave it in, in, in a good way. So I, I, then I, I sat down again, you know, and I played around with that cord, tried to pull her up back and forth. Finally, I just, the thing came loose. I connected it immediately with the May West, which I didn't need that anymore. I was on land now. And then I stood up again, tried to stop on the wing, and as I got out on the wing, I had a little difficulty with my parachute. I stopped on the wing, and thank God, before I was to slide down, I looked up ahead, and I can see cattle in this French farmhouse. I must have been about three, 400 feet above the ground. <laughs> oh, my God, I said. Then I thought of trying to jump back in the cockpit, but again, with the parachute, you know, I didn't want to disturb the stick, you know. And, well, the aircraft evidently came close with the, the contact with the ground. The right wing hit the, the ground first, and then by doing that, the aircraft moved a little bit. I was thrown, with all my, I was holding with all my power. That didn't help. I was thrown forward, missing the stopped four-bladed prop, tumbling in the air, bang. Now, how long I 
stayed down there trembling and scared like the devil, and I had injured my shoulder, by the way. A few minutes later, I began to think, I better put fire on this thing here and get away from here. So I thought, taking my parachute, putting it back in the cockpit, taking my scarf off, dipping it in one of the tanks, mixing it with the silk that I have to pull the cord, and then with the matches that I had taken out of the escape kit, which I had in my pocket, light up and get away from there. I had the parachute in the cockpit. I had just dipped my scarf in there, and I was walking up there until automatic firing from down below. Over my head. Oh, my God. You know, two German soldiers. Evidently, they had seen me coming down. The next fire, it hit the vertical stabilizer, I think, and over so close to my head that they scared the heck out of me. I dropped everything, escape kit. I had taken some things out, the, the escape map and the matches and the money. We had some several thousand francs in there in case we need to use them on, if we were down. So I, I began to run, and those rascals, when I, I was running towards a forest nearby, and those rascals were still firing, and I can see the bullets, you know, hitting the ground ahead of me. I got into the forest, they got into the forest, and that, that was when I lost them. I, as I came out from the forest, I jumped a, a fence. I got into another farm. And as I was coming down the road for a while there, I saw the motorcycle that these two gentlemen had come up. Anyway, for five days, I wandered all over the countryside, eating nothing but dandelions and drinking water from creeks. I made contact five days later, and the French gentleman that picked me up the first thing he said when he took me to his house, he said, Stefan, you parlez anglais not like an American. He spotted my accent. And he thought, he thought that perhaps <laughs> I wasn't. The Gestapo, you know what the Gestapo did or doing during the war? There was a bunch of German American youngsters who got trapped in Germany when the war started. They couldn't get back here. The Gestapo recruited them, and then they impersonated to be American aviators. Dog tags, they had all the dog tags you want. And perhaps, but the British, you know, had a beautiful system whereby one, if one of their pilots went down, the underground can contact England by radio. Not to say, hey, we got John Doe down here, you know, you see your boy or so, uh-uh. They use code words on the radio. Mary had a baby, five pounds. They're going to baptize that tomorrow. I mean, words like that. And every word was a code. That's how they found out who I was. Two days later, my, my lieutenant colonel, he was a lieutenant colonel in the French Secret Service, the guy who picked me up. He says, uh, so you are the flying Greek. That's how they knew me in the RAF and in the fourth fighter group. I said, what do you... Oh, he says, we got word from London. And we were told to take care of you. He hugged me and kissed me on both cheeks. And he also had, uh, he had brought a bottle of uh, red wine. They were really wonderful. <laughs> anyway, they said, what is it you want to do? I said, I want to go to Spain. Papa Sibyl, it's impossible. Why? I went down, the, remember this year, I went down the 5th of March just almost three months before the invasion. 
what General Ike was doing in London with all of his group, using the underground in France to prepare to blow up this bridge, blow up this junction, do this and do that. So when we invade, there will be delay for the Germans. Wonderful. So I ended up going in Paris. How did I go to Paris? In a loaded truck with firewood. As we were driving down the highway, honest to God, I can see the German trucks and uh, staff cars and uh, motorcycles, patrolled vehicles. And thank God, as we left the village I was staying south of Le Havre, a few miles further down, nearby an aerodrome, two German soldiers, as we were coming around a small bend and we, we were traveling kind of slow, two German soldiers, one of them pulled his luger and he stopped in the front of the truck. He says, he came by the driver, he said, a Paris? They want a bumper ride to Paris. So the driver and the man next to me, to my right, I was in the middle in a cabin. The, he, he spoke good English. I said, he told the guy, you know, let him come up. So we put the two Germans at the top of the firewood. So as we were going now, the Frenchman to the right said to me in English, now, he said, we're going to protect that gracious, that precious uh, cargo we have. What, the firewood? No, no. Mitraillette, machine guns, radios, hand grenades, pistols underneath the woods. Those were weapons the RAF and ourselves began to really airdrop at night. How do you bring them into Paris? You don't put them in a box and take it to the post office. You know, this was really, I mean, a clever idea. But when he told me that under the wood and the truck I was riding in, he had machine guns, I wanted to say, stop the goddamn truck. I want to get out. <laughs> you know. So we arrived in Paris, and the two Germans, one of the Germans, you know, hit the goddamn roof of the cab there, and they, went to get off. they got off. I was taken to a place. I spent six months in the French capital, and I lived with 16 different families. They didn't keep you at a place permanently because some of the French people, if they spotted that there was a young fellow at this particular house, back and forth and this and that, they would report you to the Gestapo. What was the price? 50,000 francs if you can turn an American or an English aviator. Anyway, we went through that. <laughs> I lived with a family south of Paris, and this guy, an Italian Frenchman, would visit every so often and have dinner with the people, and he said to me, demain, tomorrow, we'll go to church and pray. Oh, no, I had uh, my, my, my landlord. I said, well, no, he said, she... I want you to come with me. So the next day, Sunday, we went to the church, and I saw more German uniform, Luftwaffe, mostly, in the church, evidently. I, I really don't know whether it was, well, with the guy being Italian, Frenchman, you know, it must have been a Catholic church. So anyway, I, I had the fear that one of those guys will come up and tap me. He said, hey, young fellow, what are you doing here? Normally, the young people at my age 
would hide themselves during the day because the Gestapo would pick them up and send them to Germany, forced labor. So we walk into the church, and truthfully, truthfully, honestly, I, did I pray? You bet. I prayed the Lord there, you know, for a way to, you know, get me back to England. So after the services, one thing I noticed about the priest, a wonderful, nice-looking man, he would pick up a book from here and then read something kind of, well, fast. I, although I had French in high school in Athens, you know, and I had learned quite a bit by that time. So he was reading, and then he would put that book down. Then he'd come up here, you know, pick up another book and read again. Okay. So the service is over. Everybody got up. And as we were walking out, boy, I said, one of these guys is going to tap my shoulder. That's the fear I had. We got into, into his Citroën, and we began to drive back home. He said to me, did you like the service? Oh, I said, yeah, but I said, the, the, the Germans in there. Oh, they are Christian. Don't worry. He said, did you notice anything about the priest? I, I said, he was a nice-looking man. No, 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 nothing. No. Ah, le priest, no priest, intelligence. What he was reading from the books was codes for agents inside the church. I couldn't believe it, honestly, I just couldn't believe it. <clears throat> On the 5th of June, I was moved to another place, and a lady came in with a baby. She said, I have the tickets, this was part of the underground. I have the tickets. Tomorrow, we're catching the train for Brest. You're going to go there to a safe house and wait for a British submarine to take you back to England. This was the 5th of June, 1944. What happened the 6th of June? <laughs> Everything. You should have seen Paris. The Germans were out with tanks and what have you. It was really chaos. It, it was pathetic. So... And the woman had taken the baby, I learned, from the orphanage to impersonate to the, to the Gestapo, perhaps, you know, because the Gestapo patrol everything. I have so many of these stories. I, I, I have a story to tell you how I ended up in the sewer with a French intelligence guy because he didn't want to go through the checkpoint there and to show his face. He was moving me from one place to another. He didn't want to show his face to the Gestapo who was doing the checking. We ended up in the sewer. And when I asked the guy, I said, how do you know where we are going here? We ended up, ended up further down in that square. He opened up the manhole like we had gotten into, and we were in the middle of a square. Well, he said, I attended the University of Paris. He was an intelligence guy, too. And uh, I didn't have money, so I got a job with the sewer. They were paying good, you know, and this is how I really finished my education. And, you know, it's interesting. He said, the Germans don't like to be down there because of the smell. And if it rains, you don't get down there because you're going to be in trouble. As I said, I have quite a few to tell you about this, but I, I'm not going to bother you with that. Anyway, on the liberation of Paris, the 26th of August, 1944, you should have seen the place when... General Leclerc, Ike evidently told our people, let Leclerc with his French soldiers walk into Paris to make the Parisians think that they liberated Paris. 
Behind Leclerc was the 4th Division, Division, Army Division, our own division with General Barton, who I met, you know, during the coming into Paris. Anyway, when Paris was liberated, how many aviators came out into that world? Some seven, eight hundred <laughs> British and Americans. <clears throat> My last stay with that with group, notorious saboteurs. I went out with them one night. We derailed a train. I went out another night, northeast of Paris, not in the heart of Paris. We met another group, ambushed a convoy of seven German trucks that, had st uh, that were loaded with stolen French property. They were taken to Germany as they were evacuating. From the place where I was staying, or the place where I was staying in the city northeast of Paris, I saw a horse buggy with four wheels, no horse up in the front, able German soldiers pulling it to go to Germany with wounded Germans they had taken from hospitals. I saw vehicles the Germans had stolen from the French, but what the French had done, they had taken the rubber from the wheels. And I remember, you know, that noise was so bad. Driving an automobile without tires on a cobblestone road. I said, I said to my French friend, Qu'est-ce que c'est? Ah, les Allemands, les Allemands. You know, and he spoke English. He said, the same. He said, they came here, you know, with glory, you know, to capture France and look at them. Look at them. They were really evacuating Paris awful. Again, as I said, there are so many things here. So anyway, I got back to London, I mean, yeah, to England. Interrogated by the intelli our intelligence, and I had some guys, they wanted to know everything because I had spent quite a bit of time with the underground. And the rule was that if you had gone down in France or Belgium and spent time with the underground, you do not go back in combat. So I was dead as far as I had completed by that time 110 missions and I had shut down 10 enemy aircraft. So then the decision was that I'll go and serve at the wing. While I was at the wing headquarters, I got a telegram from my buddy Gentile, who was here at this place. I just learned that you returned safely. I knew that you were not ready to go. He said, I'm getting married at the end of November. I want you to be my best man and see if you can get an assignment to right field. Now, my, <clears throat> my general at the wing headquarters, he said, as an AD, you have a preference. You can go anywhere you want to. I said, I want to go to right field. I came here. And later on, the runway that I did test flying after I finished the test pilot school, they built the museum. Beautiful place. <laughs> Beautiful. I went through test pilot school. Gentile and I were selected to, he had gone to school before me, selected to do the service test of the YP-80 at Murak, Edwards Air Force Base today. We finished up, then we came back here. We did many, many tests. I had uh, a test uh, run one time with a P-63. I was flying over Cincinnati at about 30,000 feet. The thing blew up, but I was able to bring the aircraft here and land on the east-west runway. 
I touched down about halfway down the runway. I slammed the brakes. I wasn't on fire up there other than the engine blew and it was banging like the devil. Something inside, you know, had broken up. Where did you think I caught fire? The two wheels, after the rubber was worn out, the, the rims, you know, created sparks and bang. The fire trucks were following me. The ambulance was behind them. Staff cars were chasing me along that west runway. And when I stopped at the very end of the runway, I had released both doors, by the way, both doors, thinking I might have to jump. And when I stopped the aircraft, I jumped out, and that fireman there, I don't know who on earth he was, with that white hose, that hose of his and the foam, I was just completely covered up like a snowman. <clears throat> then I remember they put me on the ambulance and they brought me to the hospital here at Patterson. We didn't have hospital there, a small clinic at the right field. And uh, it was then when I made the decision to leave the service and go to fly for TWA. I left here and went to Kansas City. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention that while I was here and when Gentile and I returned to Wright Field from Murak, Chuck Yeager had joined us, Bob Hoover, then later on Dick Ball, Gabreski. We had six aces here and the total destruction of enemy aircraft in Europe and the Pacific, 147. This is what Dick Bohm reminded me one time while we were having coffee. The weather was bad. And anyway, I went to fly for TWA, but it was not a pleasant job. They had hired too many pilots. I had two furloughs. Then the, pilot, the captains went on a strike. But thank God, I met a wonderful woman in Kansas City and in 1946, I didn't get, let her get away from me. I married her, and not too long ago, we passed our 61st anniversary. She gave me two wonderful children. One of them is Mr. Jeff, right here. He was born in Kansas City. And the other one is Diane, who is a practitioner in Denver. Anyway, everything is wonderful. So I was on a Constellation flight to, to LaGuardia through Washington, D.C. I called my, my friend Gentile who had left the service, he came back and he got a regular commission and he was at the Pentagon. Buddy, I said, I'm coming in, TWA flight so-and-so, about having coffee. We had coffee together at National. I told him about my unhappiness with TWA. You want to get back on active duty? But Dan, I said, I don't have a college degree. You know, the Air Force requires at least any officers coming back on active duty, at least two years college. Yeah, he said, you don't have college, but you have something that the Air Force will give a million dollars to have you. Jet time. Gentile and I were probably the few of the few who had over 100 hours test jet time on the YP-80 at Murak. Leave alone the German ME-262 we flew here on the P-59. He said, I'm, when you get back to Kansas City, I'm going to send you an application for return to active duty. Don't send it through channels. You sent it to me. <laughs> Ten days later, I got a paper in the mail by direction of the president. You are to so-and-so. I went to the Pentagon. Anyway, I had good assignments all over. Uncle Sam was really wonderful to me. I served back in Germany, and from Germany, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. I served a tour in Vietnam. I commanded a squadron out there. 
and I flew an aircraft supporting the army. And then on the way back home from that tour, I was supposed to go to Vandenberg Air Force Base because my wife wanted California. We had been in California before. The telegram from the Pentagon says, because you have been promoted to colonel, your assignment to Vandenberg is canceled, and you go into this place. I was deputy commander for an ICBM, Titan II missile, and I controlled 18 of those rascals, and I want you to know that the country, Uncle Sam and the Air Force, was really protecting you. Those rascals were looking at the best Soviet cities. No doubt they were doing the same thing to us. But if you remember that time we had the B-52s, you know, flying at the same time. So in case something happened, we were going to do it. Anyway, from that assignment, the Pentagon called me again. They were looking for a colonel with fighter, fighter pilot background, Vietnam service, who can speak Greek. I was the only guy. <laughs> That's what, the, that's what the IBM, he said, that's what the, 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 the colonel, by the way, was a Colonel Tolman, who later on became commandant of the Air Academy with three stars. He said, I told my guys, you know, and he said, they told me, they called me back and they said, the only card that pops up on that IBM machine was this guy, Steve Pisanos. So they took me away and I went back to the country where I was born. The place where my odyssey to America had originated. You think my friends, my father had passed away, my mother was still alive, but my friends who thought that I was crazy? Unbelievable. And I had a chauffeur, I had a diplomatic passport, and on the way to Washington, you know, I guess I was a will, I was briefed by the State Department, by the DIA, by the CIA, and by the Air Force Intelligence. Not to be a spy, but have this open because you go to... Well, this was not typical Air Force assignment. This, is, this was a diplomatic, diplomat, diplomatic and something else. Anyway, believe me, it was really interesting. And from that assignment, I decided to put my uniform away. And let me say this in closing. I am proud of the success I found in America. And I am also proud, very proud, for having become a citizen of one of the greatest countries in the world, the United States of America. But I, but I have always felt kind guilty, you know, because over the years, I have received so much that I would never be able to pay back Uncle Sam. I treasure highly what America did for me because there is so much that I have to be grateful. Uncle Sam helped me to fulfill not only my, my dream that I had from the old country, but to achieve greatness and goals that I never dreamed. I never dreamed that someday I would be a colonel and they would put eagles on my shoulder. I never dreamed that I would go attend the test pilot school at the Air Force, 
the Air Command Staff College, the Air War College. I never dreamed that I would earn 45 decorations, wards and decorations from four countries, most of them from Uncle Sam. My gratitude to America is too great really to express in words how I feel in my heart. For this reason, I am and always will be obligated this wonderful country of ours, your country and my adopted country. America, ladies and gentlemen, is the greatest democracy on this planet and it's worth really serving in its armed forces, defending the country, fighting for the country and dying for this country and the American flag. Thank you very much.